Our Bible reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 to 36. 1 Samuel 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered under the Lord, under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Now a man of the Lord came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me? by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that the members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me I will disdain. The time is coming when I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength 
and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hopni and Phineas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I'll firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Well, Jerome uh, Jacobson was a police officer becoming, uh, before becoming the head of security for Simon Marketing. Uh, his job was to transport small pieces of stickers uh, from a pl- printing plant to a patch- uh, packaging plant. And at the packaging factory, they'd ram- randomly select uh, stickers and stick them to cups and cartons that had golden arches on them. You see, Simon Marketing was the company responsible for running the McDonald's Monopoly promotion in the 1990s in America. And Jacobson had the privilege to ensure that no one got their hands on the Monopoly stickers, otherwise the promotion would be ruined and McDonald's would lose millions of dollars. And so Jacobson had a very important job to ensure that no one got a hold of the Monopoly stickers, uh, which was worth more than $32 million in prize money. And at that, um, there, there were millions of stickers that would give you a free hamburger or fries or a drink. And if you managed to get a property set, you could even win a car. And in all those stickers, there was an instant winch, which would pocket you a million dollars in cash. But even though Jacobson had a good and steady income, an important job in a, at a great workplace, he couldn't resist the temptation. He was in a unique position to take advantage of the promotion before it was released. And so in 1989, he went to steal his first lots of stickers worth $25,000. Later on, he explained, it was to see if I could do it. Then in 1995, en route to the factory, he was assigned a female auditor to accompany him. And so to evade her, Jacobson went into the men's room at the airport. And in the privacy of a toilet store, he took the winning pieces out of the envelope put the common ones in, and went to the factory. He went on to deliver the common stickers as though they were prize stickers. And since he couldn't cash the prizes in himself, he sold them and made millions of dollars. Jacobson was the real-life hamburglar. He was trusted with millions of dollars in prize money, but he abused that trust and profited from it instead. He used his privileged position not to fulfill his duty to ensure the integrity of the game, but to line his own pockets and to fatten his own bank accounts. And in today's passage, we see something similar. People in positions of leadership, of power, of privilege, who succumb to greed and corruption. But you're not probably surprised by that, are you? Because over the last couple of weeks, as we've studied 1 Samuel together, We're very well aware that Israel was experiencing a crisis of law and order, a crisis of justice and leadership. And it all began at the very top of the food chain. That's what we see in the first section of today's passage. And it begins with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were both priests, just like their father Eli, but they weren't respectable, they were despicable. Uh, So verse 12 we read, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. 
uh, Eli's sons were scoundrels. That is, they were good for nothing. Literally, they were wicked. Uh, like the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, or like the White Witch in The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, or like Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter. Hophni and Phinehas were wicked. And if, what, if that wasn't bad enough, we're, we're also told in verse 12, they had no regard for the Lord, which literally means they did not know the Lord. Now isn't that an incredible and terrible indictment? on the priests of God. This was Israel, the nation chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth to be a kingdom of priests, a royal household, a holy nation. This was Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle was. This was God's dwelling place on earth. This was where you did business with God. And Hophni and Phinehas were priests. They had a solemn duty to teach God's law to God's people to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people of God. Yet these priests didn't even know God. If you were an Israelite reading this, you'd be absolutely shocked. How could the priests of God not know God? It's like going to a tax accountant, like your, your tax accountant, and to get tax help for your tax return, and your tax accountant doesn't even know tax law. Or you were sick and you went to your doctor's surgery and your doctor doesn't know medicine. If that was the case, you'd take your business elsewhere and find another GB clinic elsewhere. But the problem in Shiloh was even worse. Not only did Hophni and Phinehas not know God, they deliberately and flagrantly abused their power. Not to serve God, but to serve themselves. Not to honour God's holiness, but to sin in the presence of God. So it's not just like your tax accountant doesn't know tax law, he even lines his own pocket with your money. It's not just like your doctor doesn't know medicine, she's also charging you for surgery you don't need. And the problem was that as an Israelite, you didn't have anywhere else to go. There wasn't another tabernacle, there wasn't another Shiloh, and there weren't other priests that you could go to for your sins to be atoned. And so it's like you're stuck with the corrupt tax accountant and you can't see any other doctor except your incompetent GP. And so as a, a faithful Israelite, you continue to go to Shiloh year after year to offer sacrifices to God in accordance with the law. And as you're cooking your peace offering for the post-sacrificial meal, Hophni and Phinehas sends their servants to steal some of it from you. So verse 13, now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice... The priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now the law set out in Leviticus chapter 7 uh, tells us that the priests were already given the breast and the right leg of the sacrifice. But for Eli's sons, that wasn't enough. They wanted more. And so they exploited the people they were meant to serve. And it was even worse than that because they wanted red rooster and not Hananese chicken, as it were. That is, they wanted roast meat. They didn't want boiled meat. So verses 15 and 16. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now, the meat that was sacrificed wasn't chicken. 
it was lamb or goat, but you get the point, don't you? What was more important to Hophni and Phinehas was satisfying their palate and not satisfying the sacrificial laws of God. And if you dared protest and remind them of God's law, then you might be in for a beating. Verse 16, if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. No wonder the writer sums up the situation in these die words in verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But that's not all. Like a terrible uh, telemarketing commercial, it, it just gets, goes from bad to worse. Hovni and Phineas weren't just greedy gluttons. They even turned the tabernacle into a brothel in verse 22. Shiloh had become a place where sin was committed, not a place where sin was confessed. In August 2001, Jacobson was arrested and charged. The FBI had been investigating him for years. And the amazing thing was that McDonald's was aware of the fraud. And because the FBI had insisted it needed to catch the perpetrators red-handed, they agreed to continue to run the promotion. And it paid off. Jacobson was caught red-handed and sentenced for fraud. But what Hoffney and Phineas were doing at Shiloh didn't need investigation. No one needed to wait to catch them red-handed because their sins were so open and so blatant, everyone in Israel knew about it. And that included their dad, Eli. And so Eli warns his son in verse 24, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Eli's warning is quite straightforward. Hophni and Phinehas weren't just sinning against another person. They were in contempt of God's means of grace. You see, the sacrificial system was God's way to deal with sin. The lamb was dying in the place of the person who had sinned. But since Hophni and Phinehas showed contempt for the very means provided by God to deal with sins, what hope remained for them? There was no other way for their sins to be forgiven. No other way for them to be right with God. And so they remained in their sin. It's a bit like this. As you know, over the past couple, um, a year and a half, 18 months, the COVID-19 pandemic has restricted international travel. And it's only now that borders are beginning to open up and, uh, and travel bubbles established. But let's just say you were, it was last year in March and you were holidaying in Italy. You were having a great time visiting the Colosseum in Rome and riding a gondola in Venice. But almost out of nowhere, COVID spreads rampantly from China to Italy, from America to Australia. Country by country, borders are closed, including Australia's borders, and you're stuck in Italy on holidays in a foreign country. And you want to come home. You want to come home to Australia. And the government says you can. You can come home, but when you come home, you have to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel. So if you're willing to quarantine, you can return home. But if you've used to quarantine, then you can't come home. You have to stay in Italy. Now, Hoffney and Phineas wouldn't just refuse quarantine, as it were, 
They show utter contempt for the rule. They'd hop onto the internet and badmouth the government for requiring quarantine. They'd downplay COVID and spread misinformation about its symptoms. They'd rather remain in Italy and catch COVID and die than to quarantine for 14 days and be able to return to Australia. Now that's basically how Hoffney and Phineas treated God and his sacrificial system. They showed utter contempt for God's word and his, and, and, and his rules. And even ignored their father's rebuke. In verse 25, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Eli's sons didn't know God. But God knew Eli's sons. But it's not to them that God sends a prophet. But to Eli, their dad, in verse 26, 27, sorry. Now, a man of God came to Eli. Now, we don't know who this prophet is, but this prophet is sent by God to Eli to remind Eli the privilege he and his sons had as priests of God, in verse 28. And, and, and then he rebukes Eli in allowing his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to not only sin, but to allow their sin to prevail in Shiloh. So verse 29, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? You see, Eli was wearing many hats. He was wearing the hat of dad. He was wearing the hat of priest. And he was also wearing the hat of Israel's leader. But the hat he chose to wear when he raised the issues with Hophni and Phinehas wasn't the hat of a priest or the hat of a leader, but the hat of a dad. And so even though it was Hophni and Phinehas who were greedy and sexually immoral, Eli failed to call his sons to account. He tried to reason with his sons to stop, but he didn't call his sons to repent. He played the nice dad who raised the issue of sin but he should have been the brave priest who pleaded with his sons to repent from sin and offer a sacrifice for their sins. He played the nice dad who rebuked his sons, but he should have been the brave leader who removed his sons from office. And so Eli himself was guilty of scorning the Lord's sacrifice and failing to hold and to maintain the holiness of the priesthood. That means Hophni and Phinehas won't be the only ones who will be punished. God would punish Eli and his entire household for generations to come. Because Eli chose to side with his sons and not side with God. He showed contempt and so he'll be punished. And we can see that from verses uh, 30 to the end of the chapter. But even though Eli failed to raise up faithful leaders of God's people, God didn't fail to raise up a faithful leader for God's people. You see, ultimately, God doesn't rely on us to fulfill his purposes. He can fulfill his purposes in spite of us. And we see this scattered throughout today's passage. You see, Eli's sons weren't the only boys in Shiloh serving God as priests. There was another boy. A boy who didn't come from the line of priests, but from a mother who made a promise. 
if Eli's sons were the epitome of wickedness, Samuel was the epitome of faithfulness. So it turns out that in the midst of God's punishment, in the midst of corrupt leadership, God had been working away in the background this entire time. With leaders like Hophni and Phinehas, Israel would have lost all hope of becoming a holy nation that would draw people to a holy God. But God had raised up another leader for his people. As Hophni and Phinehas became worthless ministers of God, Samuel became a worthy minister of God in verse 11. Then Elkanah, who went home to Ramah, but the boy, Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. And then verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, no longer under the supervision of Eli, as it were, a boy wearing a linen ephod. As Hophni and Phinehas drifted from God's presence, Samuel grew in God's presence. So verse 21, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. As Hophni and Phinehas became a disgrace to God and Israel, Samuel grew in favor of God and Israel. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with people. And when you read through the passage today, you could almost miss it. You could almost miss the fact that God was at work in the background. And so God wants to keep reminding us over and again that he hadn't abandoned his people, that he would provide them with the leader they need. There's a story about a pilot who flew a B-17 bomber over Germany, um, a German city in World War II. But during the raid, the pilot was hit several times by Nazi anti-aircraft artillery. But every time he was hit, there was no explosion. The plane remained intact. The pilot and the crew were safe. They were very confused by, by that. Why was that happening? And so when the plane eventually landed and was looked into by the crew chief, they found 11 shells in the gas tank of the plane. Yet not one of those shells had exploded. They couldn't believe their luck. But when intelligence investigated it further, they found that all the shells were empty, except for one. It contained a rolled-up note, written in Czech. And the translation is, this is all we can do for now. You see, the Czechs had already been conquered by Nazi Germany, and they were forced to work in factories to manufacture ammunition for the Nazis. But instead of blowing up the plant or trying to assassinate Hitler, they did what they could do. Whenever their guards' eyes were averted, whenever the opportunity arose, they didn't put charges in the shells. They emptied the shells. It was all very quiet and unnoticed, but it worked. It saved lives. That's a bit like what's happening in today's passage. There's no doubt that Israel's leadership was so corrupt it was beyond saving. But in the midst of corruption, God was at work in the background, raising up Samuel to be the transitional leader Israel needed 3,000 years ago. And in a similar way, God was at work in raising up Jesus to be the servant leader we need 2,000 years ago. Just as Samuel was raised at a time when the leadership of Israel was corrupt, so Jesus grew up at a time when the leadership of Israel was corrupt. Herod tried to protect his power. 
the Pharisees tried to maintain their power, and Pilate was scared of losing his power. And the astonishing thing was that the way in which God would save his people would ultimately be through corrupt leadership. And so Herod tried to kill Jesus. The Pharisees framed Jesus, and Pilate killed Jesus. But in doing so, Jesus not only shows himself to be the leader we want, but also the priest we need. He wasn't like Hophni and Phinehas. He didn't take the sacrifice of others for his own benefit to satisfy his own appetite. But he gave himself up as a sacrifice for others to satisfy the wrath of God. And so Hophni and Phinehas deserve God's punishment for showing contempt to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Then how much more must we heed the warning in Hebrews chapter 10? That if we show contempt to the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, what might come of us? So in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Friends, if we are living in sin, whatever it is, like the sin of greed or gluttony or the sin of lust and sexual immorality or the sin of contempt or the sin of honouring our children more than God, like we've seen in today's passage, and if we deliberately sin and continue to sin and not repent, then we are showing contempt for Jesus' sacrifice. And we're worse than Hophni and Phinehas, for there's no other sacrifice left than that of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And so, friends, we must repent, and we must continue to repent, and make the most of every opportunity to call others to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn back to God before it's too late, to repent before God hands us over to our hard hearts. And if that happens, then all hope will be lost. But the fact that you're here this morning means that it's not too late. And the good news is that it's not too hard. We only have to look at Matthew to know. You might remember Matthew. He was a tax collector. And Jesus made him into an apostle. Matthew was a corrupt tax collector whom Jesus changed and became a pillar of the church. And so just as God's love and power could transform Matthew, so his love and power can transform us, you and me and anyone who would turn to Jesus. And what I love about this church is that we are a community of believers who have not only experienced the love and power of God's transforming grace, but he, that his love and power continues to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, each day and every day. And so, friends, may we heed God's warnings this morning and continue to delight in God's mercy every day. Amen.